You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. All right, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3 today, so I encourage you to turn uh, to that. We're working our way through the book of Ephesians. So as you're turning there, I just want to ask you a a question, and the question is, why are you here? Why are you here? And I'm not asking why are you here at Galveston Bible Church today on this day. I'm asking you, why are you here on planet Earth? Why are you in this world? This is a question that I think needs to be answered, uh, because very often what happens is that we lose sight of our mission. Uh, We begin to settle into life quite nicely, um, and we start to erroneously believe that we're here to live like everybody else. We go to school, right? We get a good education so that we can uh, settle into a good career, maybe along the way, um, uh, marry a spouse, have a few children, raise up those children to continue the same cycle over and over and over again. That's not a bad thing. I don't want to say that it is. But is there more to life than just living and dying? I don't know if you've heard it. I heard it years ago from someone that they were looking at a tombstone and they saw the birth date and the uh, death date And then there was a dash between, and they said, the only thing that matters is that dash. The only thing that matters is what you do from the day that you're born to the day that you die. That's important. In the movie uh, Braveheart, the story about William Wallace, who is seeking to free Scotland from the oppressive rule of the English, uh, at one point in the movie, William Wallace says this, every man dies but not every man really lives. Not every man really lives. What does it mean to really, really live? What does it mean to really, really live? I submit to you that it's more than just settling down with a spouse in the suburbs with 2.5 kids. There's more to life than that. In fact, we don't have to wonder what it means to live because the word of God, God himself tells us what it means to live. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says this, for to me to live is Christ. For to me to live is Christ. And then in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, he says this, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Did you hear what Paul said? He said, Christ, who is your life. Your job is not your life. Your spouse is not your life. Your children are not your life. Your, your, your favorite sport is not your life. Those are all great things given to us by God. Christ is your life. You have died with Christ, and now you've been raised up with Christ, and you are a new person in Christ, a new man, a new woman in Christ. Elsewhere, Paul says that you are not your own. 
but you have been bought with a price. What was that price? It wasn't money. It was the blood of Jesus Christ. And therefore, you and I, since we've been bought, are to glorify God in our bodies. We're to glorify God in our bodies, which actually belong to him because they have been purchased by him. The reality is that you and I were slaves to sin, uh, having to obey its every command. And then in his grace, Jesus stepped in and purchased us once again with his very own blood so that our lives would no longer belong to Satan, nor would our lives belong to us, but they would belong to God. You've heard me say this many times before if you've uh, been here for any length of time, but when God called his people out of Egypt, uh, cruel slavery for 400 years, God's command to Egypt, that cruel taskmaster, that, 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 that cruel uh, uh, dictator that had kept them in bondage, it was not simply, let my people go. It was, let my people go that they may serve me. There was a transfer of ownership that was going on. They were slaves to a cruel king who was bent on their destruction. And now they were slaves to a benevolent master who had nothing but their flourishing in mind. And he called them so that they could be a light in a dark world. He had a purpose for calling them out of the land of Egypt. God's desire at the outset from the very call of Abraham was to actually bless all nations, all people in Abraham. The mission of Israel was for the glory of God in the proclamation of who the true God was. The mission of the early church was the glory of God in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the mission of you and I today is the exact same. It is the glory of God in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul's mission was, and he loved it. He loved it. It was his calling. It was the purpose for which he was created. If you read Paul's story, you know that he was well-educated, right? He probably had an equivalent of a doctorate today. He was well-educated. He had settled into, uh, if you will, a career as a rabbi uh, and, a, and a secondary career as a tent maker. And all was going well until one day God knocked him off of his feet. He knocked him off of his feet and he said, hey, rebel, I've got a mission for you. I've got a mission for you. It was a costly mission, but it was worth every painful encounter, every tear that was shed, every bruise that was received. Because for Paul, to live was Christ and to die was gain. What do you mean to die was gain? It meant to finally be out of this sinful body with its limitations and to be in the presence of Christ. And that was gain for him. And he knew that one day when Christ returned to earth, in all of his glory and power, that Paul would be there right with him. That's why he endured. All the suffering along the way was worth it, which is why in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul declared with confidence, 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And if you read his letters, you see that he underwent a lot of suffering. And he says, doesn't matter at all. It doesn't compare with the glory that's to be revealed to us one day. Paul loved his calling. And he stood in awe daily as he thought, why me? Me? You've called me. Do you know, do you know who I am? He stood daily in awe that God had called him into, into such an important mission. This brings us to our, our passage today in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, if you haven't turned there, I'm going to ask you to turn there now. Um, what we see here is Paul, uh, his call into the ministry here. We're going to just focus in on verses 1 through 6, but I want to read all the way to verse 13. This is the very word of God. He says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of the grace of God's grace that was given to you for me, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed in his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. The first thing that I want you to notice about this passage uh, is that uh, chapter 3 was intended to just be a prayer. It was intended to be just a, a prayer. Um, why do I say that? Well, if you look at the first uh, three words in verse one, it says, for this reason. And then if you skip down uh, to verse 14, you see, for this reason, uh, I bow my knee before the Father. Uh, and then you see verses 14 through 21 is actually a prayer. It's a prayer for understanding. So this was a prayer, uh, but uh, and what happens very often with Paul, if you read his letters, is that he gets sidetracked, okay? And so uh, the end of verse 1 all the way to the end of verse 13 is really one big parenthesis. And it is a monumental parenthesis. This is a very important parenthesis, so important that we're going to spend two weeks talking about this parenthesis. There are several things that I want you to see in this passage. Here's where we're going to be going today with it. The first thing that I want you to see is how Paul identifies himself, okay? The second thing that I want you to see is the mission that Paul was called to, 
The third thing that I want you to see is the message of that mission because the message is powerful. And then finally, we'll close by asking the question, what does this have to do with us? I mean, this is Paul's mission. This is Paul's calling. What does this have to do with us? So let's look first at the identity, Paul's identity, how he identifies himself. In verse one, Paul says uh, that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. A prisoner, I have to tell you this, is someone who is not in control anymore. They are bound, right? They are bound uh, and they're controlled by someone else. This phrase, I think a prisoner of Jesus Christ has a dual meaning. The first is obvious. If you know the history, Paul was actually in prison. He was in a physical prison at the time. He was writing this letter to the Ephesians while incarcerated, while he was in prison. But his imprisonment was no accident. It was no accident. It was in the divine plan of God. And more than being a prisoner of Rome, he was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He was bound by Jesus. Think about it. He was in actual prison at this time um, because what he did is he went down to Jerusalem. Even though he had been told by a prophecy that if you go down and you open your mouth, you're going to be arrested. And so Paul went anyway. If Paul would have just kept his mouth shut, he would have been free. He wouldn't have not been imprisoned. But no, no, no. Paul had to open his mouth. But why? Why? Well, once again, because he was a prisoner of Jesus. His mouth no longer belonged to him. It didn't belong to him anymore. It belonged to Jesus. In fact, if you look at talking about belonging, if you look at how Paul identifies himself in, in many of his other letters, is he identifies himself as a bond slave of Jesus Christ. That word that he uses for bond slave is the lowest form of slavery that you could be. You had different forms of slavery uh, during the, the Roman Empire. You had people who would actually sell themselves into slavery to pay off a debt and stuff like that. They had lots of freedoms, right? They were just, it's kind of like an employee, employer relationship. But here, this is someone who had no authority whatsoever. Their every move was dictated by their master. And that's how Paul identifies himself. That's how he sees himself in relation to Jesus. He had been bought with a price. Once again, that price was not money. It was the blood of Jesus. And he was no longer his own. He was no longer in control, which is why he had to open his mouth. I want you to turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 25. Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 25. Here what we see is Paul actually predicting that he's going to end up in jail because of his mouth, because of his preaching. Uh, in this chapter, what happens is that Paul calls the elders of the Ephesian church together uh, because he knows that he's never going to see them again. And there's a lot of crying that's going on in this beach and he's weeping and he wants to say his final goodbyes and he also wants to say, hey, take care of the flock that God has entrusted you to, with, right? Right because you're gonna get it from the outside and you're gonna get it from the inside. 
So take care of them. And so he calls them together, warns them to be faithful uh, to God. And here's what he says regarding uh, himself. He says, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. It was his mission. It, it, it wasn't about Paul. It wasn't about his comforts. It was about the mission of bringing the good news to the world. It's that that compelled him to open his mouth. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. And as you're turning there, I want to read Paul's motivation as found in Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 14 and 15, which is a passage that we're going to uh, talk about at the end of this sermon. But here's what he says as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 9. In Romans 1, 14, he says this, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to, the, and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul is saying, I'm under obligation. I have to do this. And in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16, we see Paul's compulsion to preach the gospel. And he says this, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe, cursed would I be if I didn't obey the gospel. Why? Because I would be in direct disobedience to what God has called me to do. My mouth is not my own. It's been purchased. He had to do what Jesus, his master, had called him to do no matter what the cost. Well, this brings us to the mission. We saw how Paul identifies himself. What was Paul's mission? What was his calling? His calling was to preach to the Gentiles, to let them know that, hey, you are included in the plan of God. You're included in this salvation that we're talking about. At the end of verse 3, in Ephesians uh, chapter 3, he says this, as I have written briefly, what he's doing is he's referring to what he said in chapter 2, where he, he was talking about the Gentiles who were once far off, who were once excluded, but now have been brought near, now have been included. And he's like, I've already talked to you about this. I already wrote, wrote briefly just a few moments ago about this. So this, this is what his mission was, is to preach to the Gentiles. I'm here to tell you the good news of Jesus. Well, what was the message of the mission? Well, we've already hinted at it. Paul's already told them uh, in, verse, in chapter 2, but he specifically, uh, we find it in verse 6 of chapter 3. He says this, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
Don't be confused by that word mystery. Uh, mystery, as Paul uses here, simply meant something that was previously hidden, some uh, big monumental truth, but has now been revealed. He says as much in verse four and five of chapter three, he says this, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery revealed involves God's salvation of the Gentiles, namely that they are fellow heirs, they're members of the same body, and they're partakers of the promises in Christ. I won't spend too much time talking about these things. We've talked about them in the past, um, but I think uh, a little bit of brief uh, review is helpful. Let me start with the promises just briefly here. Many of the promises given to the people of Israel uh, in the Old Testament focused around their salvation and the soon coming of the Holy Spirit. In Genesis chapter 12, God established a covenant with Abraham and said, I'm going to bless all nations through you. In Exodus chapter 20, God establishes a covenant with a newly formed nation of Israel. In the book of Joshua, God um, uh, renews that covenant. And then finally, in the prophets, uh, God starts to speak of this new covenant, which is better than the old covenant. It's much superior to the old covenant. Well, why is that? Well, I'm going to ask you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 through 34, where God talks about this new covenant that is coming. And he says this, Jeremiah 31, 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. No more. If you were to look at Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 28, you would see a similar thing. And he ends, Ezekiel ends with the phrase which we saw similarly in Jeremiah. And this is the phrase, and you shall be my people and I will be your God. This is the greatest promise in the Bible. There is no greater promise than that God will be our God and we will be his people. There is a relationship that is going on. There is a binding together in an, in an unbreakable bond. The end goal of removal of sin, the end goal of the, of, the, of the gift of the Holy Spirit is that you and I would be the people of God and that he would be our God. These promises were given exclusively to the Jewish people in the, in the Old Testament. And here, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is saying, the great mystery is this, 
that God's intention is for all nations, all people of all backgrounds, men, women, Jews, Gentiles, bond, free, all of them are included in God's great promise of salvation. And I'm going to tell you what, we should be very, very thankful for this. I would venture to say that the vast majority of the people in here, if not everyone, is a Gentile. Um, okay? Uh, most of us are not Jewish people. But we as Gentiles are beneficiaries of this message that Paul preached 2,000 years ago. We are here today worshiping God, included in his family, because thankfully Paul took his mission very, very seriously and preached the gospel, even though it ended up costing him his freedom and eventually his very own life. He didn't count his life on any account as dear to himself. I have to finish the mission that God has called me to. The result of his preaching is that we Gentiles are fellow heirs and we're members of the same body. Fellow heirs means that we're entitled to a full inheritance. What God owns, we own, which is everything. But I'm going to be quick to remind you, as I often do, the greatest inheritance that we get is not the streets of gold, right? It's not the reunion with those family members that have gone on before us. It's not a body that's free from illness and pain one day. Those are all good things that we'll get. The greatest inheritance that we get is God himself. It's God himself. The psalmist said, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. God is our inheritance. We're also members of the same body, which means if you've been following along in Ephesians, that we are united with Christ. We're united with Christ and with each other in an unbreakable bond. Where he goes, we go. What he has accomplished in terms of good works, which are pleasing to the Father, we have also accomplished because we are in him. And where he ends up, seated in the heavenly places, guess what? We end up there. We are united with him. These are the great promises that we have become partakers of. Next week, we're going to talk more about the, uh, some other major implications of being fellow heirs and members of the same body. But what I want to do uh, with the remaining time that we have is I want to answer uh, a couple of questions. And they're this. What does this mean? What does all of this mean? How should we respond to these truths that we're learning about week after week? Well, the first way that we should respond is simply by meditating on these things. Meditating on these, and, uh, these things and crying out in thanksgiving to God. In chapter 1, we saw that at the end of chapter 1, Paul, after he says all these monumental things that you were chosen, you were adopted, you were redeemed, he stops and prays and says, I just pray that you get this. I pray that God gives you a heart and, and eyes to see these truths because you need to get them. And what he will do at the end of this chapter is he will break into prayer again and say, you need to get this. You need to understand the height and the depth and all this stuff. You need to get this. And you get it by sitting at home and meditating on these things, opening it up and saying, is this really true? What does this mean that I'm adopted into the family of God? 
What does this mean that I'm an heir? An heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. What does that mean? I've been forgiven. What does it mean? We need to meditate on these truths. Understanding them is the key to living a victorious Christian life. So take some time this today, sometime this week, and just say, God, I just need to meditate on this. What does this mean? Meditate on who God is and what he's done for us. The second thing that I want you to realize, and this is very important, is that you, as a Christian, have a calling as well. You, as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, have a calling as well. It was not just Paul who was given a sacred and important calling. It was not just people like Peter and James and John and Martin Luther and John Wesley and Billy Graham and John MacArthur or Deborah or Esther or Lydia or, or Corey Ten Boom or Elizabeth Elliot or any missionary or pastor that we may, may stand in awe of today. Everyone has been given a calling. Everyone. We all have a calling and we all have what I like to call a geographic area of spiritual responsibility. We all have a geographic area of spiritual responsibility. You live at a certain address. You interact with neighbors that I will most likely never interact with. You work at a place that I don't work at. You go to school at a place that I don't go at. You are there by God's design. That is your area of spiritual responsibility. God has plopped you there and said, what will you do now? How will you serve me now? It may be a big responsibility involving thousands of people, or it may be a small one only involving a few people. It may be a class at UTMB, or it may be standing on a stool on the seawall and preaching to people going by. It may be in an office building. It may be on an athletic field. It may be in a classroom, a restaurant, the tourist industry, or a construction site. It doesn't matter because it's still a calling from God to share the good news of Jesus and make disciples of all nations, all cities, all neighborhoods, including Galveston. As we mentioned at the beginning, you have a higher purpose in this life than just getting a good job, settling down with a spouse and 2.5 children. Just like Paul, God has called you into a specific and important mission. It may not be as far-reaching as Paul's, but it's no less important than Paul's. So here's what I want to ask you. Do you know what your specific mission is? Do you know what God has called you to? And if you say, I don't, then are you actively seeking out what that is? Are you actively trying to find out what that mission is through prayer, through the reading and study of God's word, and through interacting with the people of God, brothers and sisters, wise brothers and sisters that he has placed across your path? Are you seeking to find out what is it that you have called me to do. <clears throat> and I hope that you realize this, okay? I'm gonna get right up in your face right now. This is not an option, okay? This is not some, I'm gonna opt out of this mission. 
No, thank you for your salvation. Thank you that I'm not a, a, an object of your wrath anymore. The mission stuff, don't got time for it. I'm going to opt out. No, it is not an option. Among other things, the Christian life in the Bible is described as a battle. A battle where we are soldiers enlisted in the army of God. Every soldier in an army has a specific task. They have an area that they are responsible for. And if you are not, if you're an enlisted soldier in the army of God, and you're not actively carrying out your mission, you are AWOL, okay? You are in dereliction of duty, and that's a serious, serious thing. So I encourage you, find out what your orders are from God Almighty, from your commander, Jesus, and start to carry those orders out. If you do know what your orders are, and you've been actively engaged in the battle, then my encouragement to you comes from Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, when Paul says this, And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And then in Psalm chapter 27, verse 14, you are encouraged to wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And the result of waiting on the Lord is found in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We are all in need of endurance. And this is another reason that I, 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 I said it many times that we need all hands on deck we need all hands on deck, spiritually speaking. There are people in this church who are struggling. There are people who have been in, engaged in ministry for years and they're tired. They're exhausted. And they need a break. They need to step out of the battle for a moment to just heal because they've been wounded or they're tired. And my question is, Will you step up, if you're not currently serving, will you step up and say, here I am, let me relieve you. Let me take over. What is it that you need? What positions need to be filled? If God has gifted me for that, I will do it. Will you step up and help out? I hope that you will. This church and every church on the island and every church in the country and the world needs for everyone to be involved. You don't get to go into battle and just sit back. You're engaged in it. This message of salvation needs to go out to everyone. There are billions of people in the world. There's about 50,000 plus people in Galveston, most of which I would say don't know Jesus, don't know the Lord. And we are called to bring the message to them, whether we like them or not. Okay, whether they're of the same political party as us or not, whether they're of the same race uh, or gender or socioeconomic status as, as us or not, we must go to everyone, everyone. As we close, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. We referenced this earlier. Romans chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. I want you to hear how Paul describes what he believes his responsibility to God is and to his fellow man is, okay? 
Romans chapter 1. This is his introduction to this amazing, amazing letter that he wrote to the Romans where he just lays out clearly the gospel uh, of Jesus. He says this, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. The very first thing I want you to mention, uh, I want you to notice is that this message is to go out to everyone. It's to go out to everyone. Paul did not have the liberty of picking and choosing who he wanted to get the message to. Oh, no, don't want to talk to them. No, don't want to talk to them. Oh, this person looks like someone I can talk to. No, he didn't have the liberty to do that. He was called to go to everyone. The second thing I want you to realize is that Paul says he was under obligation. Under obligation. Other translations say indebted to. Indebted to. The, the actual word that Paul uses means to owe or to be a debtor. In order to get the full impact of this statement, okay, uh, for Paul and for us, I want to give you an illustration. I've used this before, but I think it bears repeating. Let's say that someone uh, had been coming to this church for years, uh, and then they had moved on, they moved to another state or whatever, and then they came back for just a, a brief period of time, like a week or two, and they said, hey, I want to get together with you. And so I got together with them, and upon our conversation, they said, hey, there used to be this guy in the church uh, that I knew was really struggling financially. Is he still in the church? How is he doing? And I, and I were to say, yeah, he's still in there. He's still struggling uh, financially and stuff like that. He's actually, you know, living on the streets right now. And this guy were to say, hey, you know what? God's been really good to me. I'm going to give you $200,000. And what I want you to do is I want you to keep $100,000 for yourself to, to, to pay off any debt that you owe and, you know, help your kids through college and stuff like that. But the other $100,000, I want you to take and give to him for me. Okay. What am I to do with that money? Okay, I have $200,000 in cash in my hands right now. What am I to do? Well, the 100,000 he said is for me uh, to use on my necessities. But the other $100,000 is not mine. I am now indebted to this person he's talking about, even though this person doesn't even know that the money's there, right? I owe them that money and I'm indebted to them until I actually give them that money, okay? So if this friend of mine were to come back a year later and say, hey, did you give that money to them? And I were to say, no, I, I, didn't, I, I, didn't, I didn't give it to them yet. Why? What would my excuse be, right? Well, I've been really busy, right? I've been really busy or um, I, I thought that they could survive a little bit longer without it or to be honest with you, I, I never really liked them, right? I never really liked them. You know, I don't think that they deserve the money. I, that's just to be honest. I didn't want to give it to them. I have no excuse. Why? Because the money is not mine. It's been entrusted to me to give to them, whether I like them or not, whether I'm busy or not. It's theirs. The same is true with the gospel. We have been given a treasure far beyond $100,000, right? Far beyond a trillion dollars. And we have been commanded by our Lord, by our master, by our commander to take that gift and to share it with the people at work, with the people in our neighborhoods, with the people in our schools, with everyone. To hold on to it, 
is a sin, okay? To hold on to it is a sin because it is depriving someone else of an offer, an offer to have all of their spiritual debt erased and to be fit for the presence of God and to become a member of his family. I'm depriving of them of that by holding it in. To hold it in is the epitome of hate, okay? It's the epitome of hate. In the story above, what if I held on to that money that I was given to give to this person for never another couple months and then that person actually died of starvation or they died because they couldn't get the heart medication that they needed to keep their heart going or their blood pressure under control. I would be held accountable, right? Their blood, if you think about it, would be on my head. We talked about this a couple weeks ago in Ezekiel chapter 3 where God said this basically to his prophet, hey, go to the unbelievers and tell them that they will perish in their sins unless they turn. And if I tell you to do that and they still, and, and, they, and they don't turn from it, you know, or, or if I tell you to go and, and tell them this and you don't go, then they will die in their sins, but I, hope I will hold you accountable for that. But he also says this, if I do, if you do go to them and you do tell them to repent of their sins and they don't, do it. They will die in their sins, but I will not hold you accountable. You are no longer indebted to them. You've given them the message that I told you to give. You are not obligated to them anymore. Well, what we need to know is that we are indebted we're indebted to the world to bring the message of Jesus Christ to them. This is a high, high calling from God. We're all soldiers in his army. We're sent on a mission to a sinful, fallen world. We have the message of the good news that can make people right with God. And my question is, are we getting the message out? Are we getting the message out? And once again, going back to this, if we, the illustration, if we go out and we say, here's the offer of God and they reject it, there's nothing we can do about that. We have offered it to them. But my question is, are we offering it to them or are we holding it in? And I started to think about this this week. My preaching, what I do here on a Sunday morning, is just a small part of getting that message out, right? It's just a small part of it. Like if this is all I did, that's not it, right? It's just going out to maybe uh, 150 people tops during the week, right? Most of who are believers already, right? It's just a small part of it. The Bible studies that go on during the week, the, the, the small groups, the, the, the fight clubs are just a small part of that. You know what my actual job is? My actual job is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. That's what my job is. My job is to equip you to go out into your workplaces, to go out into your neighborhoods, to go out into your schools and to take this message to the world, to your fellow classmates, your fellow employees. That's what my job is, to equip you. And then I'm to join you in that as well, wherever I can. There's many people from your work that I've talked to uh, that I've been able to, uh, to share with. And I, I'm thankful for that. But what we do here on a Sunday morning in an hour and a half, it's just a small, small portion of it. 
we are obligated to get this mission out. So I'm just going to say, come, come on Sunday mornings, uh, come on Sunday nights, come on Wednesday nights or, or Tuesday mornings or whatever it is. Listen, learn, and then go out, right? Go out. Don't hold it in. You and I are indebted to the people of Galveston or wherever else God has called us. So let's go out and give them what has been given to us in which we have been eternally changed forever because of that message that came to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank and praise you for who you are. You've given us a gift that is, there's no monetary value that can be placed on it. It's forgiveness of sins. It's a turning away of the wrath of God. It's a welcoming into the family of God. It's, it's joint heirs with Jesus. It's the privilege of calling God our God and hearing him call us his own. Lord, I pray that we would get that message out. I pray, God, that no matter what the cost, that we would realize that our mouths don't belong to us anymore. They belong to you, and I pray that we would get the message of Jesus out to a world who, that desperately needs it. We pray that you would do this, Holy Spirit. Convict us this week. Draw us close to you and give us opportunities to share. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.